I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Lucy Haslam is well known to many of you. She's a retired nurse who started campaigning for legalisation of medicinal cannabis when initially forced to access cannabis in the black market for her son Daniel, who was diagnosed with bowel cancer at age 20. And for those of you who saw the start of the documentary, you will have seen that. Lucy has been heavily involved in political discussions around the legalisation of medicinal cannabis and is widely credited as the driving force behind various state and federal initiatives aimed at legalising the drug. Together, Lucy and Dan started a Change.org petition which gained over 252,000 signatures. She and Daniel founded the United in Compassion. Lucy organised the first ever Australian Medicinal Cannabis Symposium in Tamworth in 2014, and some of you may have been there. This year's symposium was held in Melbourne in June. Lucy was featured on the ABC Australian Story in 2015. She was nominated for Australian of the Year Award in 2016, and I think she'll be nominated again, and named in the Top 100 Women of Influence Awards 2016. I'd like you to welcome Lucy Haslam. Thank you. On behalf of United in Compassion, I'd firstly like to thank Brett um, for the support of the Nurses Association for the work that I've been doing. Um, I know Dan was incredibly grateful when the Nurses Association came on board, I think back in 20... 14, um, as a supporting uh, organisation. To us, that's you know, incredibly important. And I've just got to say that I stand before you today really more as a mother than as, as a nurse, but um, certainly my nursing background has been invaluable in, in this journey that I'm on, um, which unfortunately I'm still on. I thought it would have probably been over by now, but I think it's going to be a little while before we get to a place where... I can feel happy to let this go. So for the people that have been here for the beginning of the film, I apologise if there's a bit of duplication. Um, I wasn't quite sure how many people would see the film before I spoke. So here we go. I do tend to waffle, so please someone wave at me if I'm starting to waffle. Okay, so January 2010 was where Dan's story began for us. We were a fairly ordinary family. Um, I have three sons. Um, Dan was my youngest. They were all very close in age, very close brothers, and um, I, I guess for us life was wonderful. We couldn't have really wished for much more. Um, we were a very, in a very happy place. Our kids were all um, becoming great young men. Um, Dan was about to start his second year of university in um, Lismore, and unfortunately everything changed for us on the 5th of February in 2010 when he was diagnosed out of the blue with stage 4 bowel cancer. My biggest regret in life ever um, was that a few months earlier Dan had said to me that he had some bleeding from the bowel. And Nurse Lucy said, Dan, don't be silly, you've probably just got a hemorrhoid. You're 20 years old for goodness sake. It'll be fine. Keep an eye on it let me know how you go. So a few months later, I, he called me from the big day out concert saying, Mum, I'm really getting worried. I've got this bleeding. Um, and he was about to go back to uni, so I called on a friend who was the wife of the local uh, surgeon who was doing the um, colonoscopies and said, can you squeeze Dan in? They did that on Friday the 5th of February and our lives changed forever. 
So Dan had a huge bowel cancer and um, very soon we realised that it was very advanced. So over... Oh, sorry. Overnight, Dan really went from being fit and healthy, um, you know, enjoying university life, enjoying a new love, to facing a death sentence. And, you know, we embarked on years of um, bowel surgery, peritoneal resection, liver resection. Uh, I sent him to Germany for oncothermia a couple of times. He had radiation. He had non-stop chemotherapy. And it was, it was a pretty crap way of life, I've got to say. So by 2014, things were pretty desperate in our family. Dan had developed anticipatory nausea, so just the thought of chemotherapy would make him sick. So he would vomit all the way to chemo. He would, the only way we could really manage his chemo was um, for me to check him into the local private hospital. They'd have a bed ready as soon as we left the clinic, take him straight there, they'd put him on a drip and he'd lie in the dark for the... Um, two and a half days that he had his chemo pump on. Um, he wouldn't talk, he wouldn't sleep, he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't, he just lay still and quiet in the dark. And if he moved, he threw up. If he got up to the toilet, he threw up. So, you know, that was, um, that was the best way we could manage. And it really wasn't managing. It was, it was awful. And our whole family were just completely, our lives revolved around this chemotherapy. And I think we almost all developed anticipatory nausea. Um, Dan had a very good friend who's um, a local businessman and who's in charge of the local gym. He's a great big muscle man, um, a, uh, an American Negro who um, himself had enjoyed bowel cancer just a couple of... Um, well, actually, he was diagnosed after Dan, but he was actually doing quite well. And he said to Dan, look, mate, I've got some cannabis that was given to me when I was having my chemo. I think you should try it. Dan said no. But fortunately for me, DJ phoned and told me the same thing and I said, absolutely, bring it down around. We were so desperate by that stage. So he brought the chemo, uh, the cannabis round. My husband, who was ex-drug squad, rolled a joint. He hadn't done that for a while. Um, he was actually undercover in the drug squad for many years and he ran the drug squad in the northwest of New South Wales, which was pretty ironic. Um, so he drew on his past skills and rolled down a joint and um, it was quite, you know, I mean, I, I use the word miraculous and I don't do that lightly, but Dan went from the colour of a piece of paper, um, you know, clinging his vomit bag, the colour immediately came back into his face. Uh, after a couple of puffs on a cigarette, which he, he'd never... He wasn't a smoker, so Lou had to teach him how to inhale. And the colour came back in his face and he said, oh, OK, I feel all right, I actually feel hungry. And, you know, this is a kid that would normally by this stage be in the hospital bed with it, you know, hooked up to his IV. Um, and he never vomited again. It was, it was miraculous. So there were a lot of benefits for Dan... He, um, he, he had a much better appetite, he wasn't vomiting, he was able to be at home. Um, you know, he could be part of our family instead of being in, in hospital. Um, there were just so many benefits. It, it gave him quality of life and, you know, I can clearly remember the conversation that we had that very first day was, shit, if cannabis can do this for Dan, you know, 
we have to fight for this. And we started toying with that idea. And the more I learned about cannabis, the more clear that that became um, exactly what we had to do. But I wasn't naive and I had all these really strong preconceptions about cannabis. I was brought up to think it was a really bad drug. It was a gateway drug that would cause schizophrenia. Isn't that what all nurses are taught? Um, so you, you hit Google and you do look and you look into the history and, you know, Brett uh, alluded to the history and it's quite incredible, the history around prohibition. And when you realise all that stuff, you think, are we mad? Are we really that mad that we're still believing all that rubbish that they came out with uh, around, you know, the 1930s? And, you know, it all coincided with the rise of DuPont and nylon and, um, you know, the rise of the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, for many, many years, for decades, for about eight decades, you know, the harms have been exaggerated. Research has been stymied. The only research that was funded was research into the harms of cannabis. So no wonder we had this um, impression of cannabis. So while things were great with Dan, he was feeling much better, much, much more human and much more like he could fight his disease. Um, there was a downside and that was that we were now criminals. And really, um, I, I guess we felt a bit more vulnerable, I think, the fact that my husband had been in the, in the drug squad for so long. We were, we were nervous. Um, having, giving Dan a little bit of cannabis that was left over from a friend was one thing. But really, after a little while, Dan started to think about using cannabis oil um, to try and treat his cancer. If you look on the internet, it's not long before you come across a fellow called Rick Simpson. And uh, this is a gentleman from the States who um, appears to have cleared up his prostate cancer using ca ingesting cannabis oil. And Dan said to me, Mum, I want to try and cure my cancer. The hospital was saying there was nothing much they could do other than this re-challenge with chemo, which was another way of saying the, the chemo didn't work the first time, but we've run out of ideas, so we're going to give it another shot. So I said, OK, I wasn't going to stand in his way, but that meant buying quantities. That meant buying poundage. And interestingly, when we did go public, um, poundage started arriving in the mail. Um, poundage started driving up in refrigerated vans from Sydney by, you know, people that wanted to help. And I was starting to think, oh, my God, um, this is really getting very scary. But... I'm making light of it now, but the fact that somebody is considered a criminal when they're trying to manage really debilitating, cruel symptoms of disease is, I think, criminal. So very early on, as we researched, we came across other people who were using medical cannabis. Um, you heard a little bit about Daisha if you saw the film, and there's a bit more to come about Daisha. For me, when I saw her YouTube video, um, which was shown in that first half of the film, that had a huge impact on me. And I sat down and I showed my whole family that film. And we really, really decided then we have to do something. We have to speak out for people like Dan and for people like Daisha. And all those people in those um, photographs are people that I've come in contact with. And they're still all criminals. When we decided we'd become public about... <laughs> Um, trying to change things. Um, it wasn't like I had this master plan, but everything sort of fell into place. I'd contacted Dr Alex Wodak um, 
who'd made some submissions uh, to the 2013 Senate inquiry in New South Wales, and I found his email address, and I was worried that about Dan coming to harm, and you know he reassured me very quickly that Dan wouldn't come to any harm, and he put me in contact with the project who wanted to do a story on a, a current cannabis user. And that probably just launched everything. We, we did the story on the project. At the, that same night, I started the change.org petition. I spoke to our local newspaper editor, spoke to our local MP, and we decided that we were going to make it public and um, see where it would take us. Media interest was incredible. Um, you know, we did, we did all the major TV shows, and, and we, are, we are so not that kind of people, but um, it, was just, it was just unstoppable, the media attention. One of the really interesting things was the night that Sunday night showed Dan's story, and they did an online poll for four hours. So in that four hours, and this is quite early on in the campaign, but in that four hours, they got 2.82 million votes, and 97% uh, of, of those voters were in favour of um, legalising medical cannabis. And I think it was at that point that we really thought, well, you know, we've got to be close to a tipping point here. With the, camp with the change.org campaign, one of the things that had been suggested to me um, by the change.org people was to, uh, every time that somebody signed the petition, I would get an email and the health minister, Gillian Skinner, in New South Wales at that time would also get an email. So on the night of this, uh, <laughs> on the night of this, it was all kind of linked in and um, she was not very happy. <laughs> And I had to go to the um, Telstra shop and say, help, help, please stop these emails. And my computer just about went into meltdown. So while all that was looking pretty positive at the same time, this was the state of the, of the polls with the, the state and territory um, health ministers and the federal health minister. So they were all opposed except the Northern Territory who were no comment. Um, so we were really kind of up against it in that sense. Um, I've put in there a photo of Dan meeting Gillian Skinner just to remind me to tell you this story. And I'm going to be completely politically incorrect here because I'm here as a mother, okay? I'm not here as a nurse, so that's... Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take that on. And um, the day that Dan met Gillian Skinner was not long after the um, campaign had begun. I'd written a story called Dan's Story, which we put on a little website called Dan's Story, and that linked to the change.org petition. And we were going to the oncology clinic for chemo and I had a copy of that story in my handbag. And as we pulled into the oncology clinic, you could see that something was going on. There was, you know, the marquee was set up and everything was looking all very official. We just had a new cancer centre built. And I thought, hmm, okay. So I rang my local member and I said, Kevin, we got something important happening at the hospital today. I said, is the health minister coming? He went, yep. And I said, is she with you? And he went, yep. And I said, well, that's great because Dan's in chemo today and we'd really like to see her. Dan would like to give her something. The health minister refused to come and see Dan up one floor. It was, um, she was too busy. But as it turned out, um, when we were leaving the hospital, uh, we were, came down in the elevator, there's the double doors and looking straight out into the car park where the marquee was set up and um, they tried to usher Dan out the back door 
And Dan said, no, Mum, fuck it. I'm a cancer patient. I'm going out the front door. So he went out the front door right into the middle of the proceedings. It was a really hot day in Tamworth. Um, everyone just went quiet and looked at Dan and he had his vomit bag and he had his pump round his neck and he went and sat down and closed his eyes and just waited for the speeches to be over. And he went up to Gillian Skinner and introduced himself and she said, I know all about you, Daniel. And I thought, okay, <laughs> that's positive. Um, he told his story and I thought, well, this is going well. She's hearing him out. And then she tapped him on the shoulder and she said, you know smoking's going to give you lung cancer. <laughs> and that's when I took my gloves off. And he said, well, I've already got lung cancer, so I guess that's okay. So... A few slides back, there was a photo of my local MP who, the first time we met him about this, about Dan's cannabis use, he was incredibly quiet. He's a man I'd known for many, many years in Tamworth, um, uh, went way, way back really, and he's a bit of a have a chat, but on this particular day, he didn't know what to say. And he went away and he told me he would go away and he would think and he came back and he said to me, look, Lucy, I, I'm going to table a private member's bill for you. I met with um, Trevor Khan and um, uh, Sarah Mitchell, who were both on the cross-party, on the, sorry, on the New South Wales Senate inquiry in 2013 into medical cannabis and they decided to support Kevin and so the idea was that he was going to table a private member's bill on our behalf, which was fantastic. Unfortunately, um, or fortunately, however you look at it, along the track I asked to see Mike Baird and we did meet Mike Baird who, prior to us seeing it, uh, seeing him was apparently very opposed to medical cannabis and very angry with Kevin Anderson for suggesting the idea of a, a private member's bill but the day that we met Mike Baird was quite amazing and he's an incredibly humble kind man and he changed his mind on medical cannabis and he eventually said to us look Kevin can table a private member's bill but it's going to stand it's better if the government does it and we're going to take this on so that was quite wonderful I'd been busily fundraising to try and get money together to support this private member's bill and all of a sudden I had um $50,000 in my pocket that I'd raised and I ended up, when that happened, I said to Mike Baird, look, I've got $50,000, um, the best thing I can do with it is education. If I put on an event, will you help me fund it? So he matched it and with that I put on in 2014 uh, the first, uh, the inaugural 2014 Medicinal Cannabis Symposium in Tamworth, which Brett came along to. And it was the beginning of quite a lot of important things. So in that picture up there, I have um, a photograph of a little girl. Her name is Caitlin Lambert. She's a, a Dravet uh, syndrome sufferer. And her father was at the symposium. Her grandfather is Barry Lambert. And as a result of that, um, I had Sydney University speaking at the symposium. Sydney University were given a grant for $33.7 million. So that was a pretty positive thing to come out of the symposium. The other important thing was Helen Kapalos, who had been um, the presenter on the Sunday night program. She helped me organize the symposium and she agreed to host it. 
And just before, as we were organising the symposium, she said to me, you know what, Lucy, I really, this is a story that I feel so strongly about. I'm going to leave television and I'm going to do a documentary on this. So, like, literally overnight, she decided she was going to leave Channel 7, do a documentary, and the filming for that documentary began at the symposium. Uh, I invited um, very famous... Um, speakers to the symposium. Uh, Raphael Meshulam um, was unable to come, but he sent Zach Klein, who's a, a filmmaker, standing there with him. Um, Lester Grinspoon from Harvard, who is a, a, an emeritus psychiatrist from Harvard University, he actually had a story very similar to mine. His son was Daniel. His son was uh, suffering from cancer. His mother got him cannabis. The cannabis helped him through his chemotherapy. So he was like my mirror self. And so he um, was able to present. And it was, quite, it was, it was fairly wonderful, actually. Um, so some really good things came out of that. Um, the clinical trials were announced by Mike Baird uh, in New South Wales. The New South Wales government announced the Terminal Illness Cannabis Scheme, which is now called the Medicinal Cannabis Compassionate Users Scheme after I lobbied them very hard to change that disgusting name. How anybody ever thought of that, I'll never know. Uh, the Lambert Initiative um, came out of that symposium. Uh, a federal cross-party committee was formed and began to work on a federal, cross uh, federal medical cannabis bill. The Victorian government started paediatric epilepsy trials and that was in response to little Cooper Wallace. And um, all the time that all this positive stuff was happening, patients and carers were still being locked up. So that was in November of 2014, and just very shortly after that, Dan passed away, which was a day that we knew was, all come, was going to come one day. Um, but anyway, it is what it is. Unfortunately, Dan didn't live to see the documentary that, um, that Helen made, but just before he passed away, she'd, she'd actually been... As, as soon as the, the symposium was over, she went to Israel and did a lot of that filming that you've now seen. She came back just before Dan passed away and showed him a lot of that footage. And I've put this slide up here just to remind me to tell you why um, the hummingbird is our symbol. So on this day, she was sitting on the lounge with Dan, showing him some of the footage, and she said, look, I really need to show cannabis in a different light. I need to show it as something that's good and uh, as medicine or something attractive instead of that horrible stark leaf pattern that you always see. And Dan said, I can help you with that, and brought out his computer and showed her that photo of the hummingbird on the cannabis. And it was, um, it was a, a photo from a fellow in America called Doobie Duck. So I wrote to Doobie Duck and said, his, his real name is Jeff Sheets, and I said, look, could we use your photograph? And um, he was more than happy. He'd heard about Dan and said, absolutely. And when we started looking at the, the symbolism of the hummingbird, the hummingbird is a symbol for the truth. So we had to adopt that as our symbol. So things happened, obviously, continued to happen politically, and... On the first, I'm going to go back a little bit as we go forward, but on the first anniversary of Dan's death, um, Susan Lee, who was the Federal Health Minister at the time, 
uh, introduced a bill um, which would allow for the cultivation, manufacture and research into medical cannabis. Um, for me, that was a really emotional day. Um, it was introduced as Dan's Law and um, um, something that I thought at the time was probably the proudest day or one of the proudest days of my life. Um, in retrospect, um, that seems to have evaporated. So, sorry, I get a little bit emotional. <laughs> Let me just catch up. So it was a very proud day, but I sit and I look back now and I think that there were so many opportunities at that stage. We could look around the world, we could pick the best of what the world had done, but instead um, I think we've gone down the very wrong road um, and it really has affected so many patients and that's what I want this to be about today, putting the focus back onto patients. So. All of those people in those photographs are all people that I know uh, and I've met. They're all people who are using medical cannabis. Um, some for Parkinson's, some for CDKL5, some for cancer. Um, one has passed away, um, brain injury, epilepsy, brain tumour. That young man in the middle in the school uniform, um, it took him 19 months to get cannabis legally. When he got his supply, he had three months. It wasn't the right supply. Then you've got to go through it all again. This is the kind of thing that the policy that has been set up is, is causing to happen for patients. So I sit back and I think, right, where did we go wrong? And it's complicated. It really is a complicated space. But in 2014, Richard Di Natale um, announced the regulator of medicinal cannabis bill. And that was a cross-party bill and it had really widespread support. And it recognised that cannabis was not like other drugs that would fit really neatly into the TGA, into that um, single molecule kind of pharmaceuticalised model. And it was looking really strong. And then at the 11th hour, at the end of 2015, was when Susan Lee announced that she was going to table this narcotic drugs amendment bill. That's where I think we went wrong. So we've, we've tried to fit a square peg into a round hole. Cannabis is not like other medicines, and I'm not talking on the science of it now, and I think Justin will do that, but cannabis is so different to other medicines. Um, the more you know about it, the more you know you don't know, um, and the more complicated you realise that it is. But it doesn't fit that model, model, and that's where I think we began to go wrong. So what happened when the federal government introduced that narcotic drugs regulation bill in 2016 was the focus went from compassion and it started talking about the need for evidence and regulation. So it means that people like Surly Peak up there um, can't get cannabis legally even though it's stopping her from having seizures. It means that people with terminal illness can have a very slim chance of getting it. It's become so complicated and convoluted, um, and I'm, I know Teresa is here, and perhaps she'll speak on that this afternoon. So I just, I'm not going to go through this too, in too much detail, but this is a one-page document that the federal government has put out as the step-by-step -step approach to how you get cannabis. And I just want to remind you that the people that are trying to follow this process for the special access scheme are people that are sick, 
are infirmed, that have got children that are really ill and they're already suffering, they're already fighting their disease, and they're expected to jump through hoops, climb bridges, go around roundabouts uh, on this journey to try and access cannabis legally. So, um, as I said, this is all on the internet, on the TGA website, if you want to have a look at it, but it is not a simple process, and we've been quite critical of it. But the criticism is met with um, that there's no give. There's absolutely no give. So that's it just goes on and on and on, um, which is kind of boring. So I'm not going to go through that. But by the time you get to the end of this process, you've spent a lot of time, if you've been lucky enough to find a doctor who's willing to do it for you, you've probably spent a lot of money. The products that you're able to access at the end of it are uh, you probably can't afford anyway and if you've lived to get to that point then you're doing well so this is what we call patient access in Australia and I think that um, in my mind I think that is absolutely disgusting and um, not only have you got to jump through the hoops at a federal level states are able to put in their own um, regulations around this and so you have patients who may get through the, the federal uh, approval process but then are, are denied access at a state level and vice versa. I don't call that patient access. And the only people that this is hurting, that this kind of policy is hurting, is the patients who continue to use cannabis because it works. They continue to run the gauntlet with the law because it's worth it for them, because it relieves their suffering. I had a phone call last week from a lady in Tamworth. Um, she'd had a knock at the... I didn't know her. She'd had a knock at the door the day before by two police detectives to say that a parcel had been intercepted uh, in the mail and that she would not be getting her parcel. And she said she started to cry. And the police said to her, look, you don't need to cry. We're not going to charge you. We don't want to be here. You know, we're just here to tell you, be careful. Your parcel's been intercepted. You won't be getting your package. And she said, I'm not crying because I'm worried about being arrested. I'm crying because I know how much pain I'm going to be in. So she was a lady with metabolic myopathy, a really painful condition, very difficult to treat. She explained to me she'd been on opiates for nearly a decade. She felt the opiates were killing her. Her son had actually encouraged her to get medical cannabis. She'd weaned herself off the opiates. She said, my life was, is so much better. Um, you know, this is a proud, a proud woman in her 50s, a, you know, a professional person who's always worked, um, and yet here she is with police at the door taking away her medicine. I don't think that's right. So one of the things that um, Brett alluded to is the increasing evidence. And earlier this year, the USA National Science Academy did put out a really comprehensive report, a review on the evidence. <clears throat> and bearing in mind that cannabis research has really been stymied um, and prohibited in many circumstances for the last you know, eight decades or so. So in spite of that, there is conclusive or substantial evidence um, of the effectiveness of cannabinoids for the treatment of chronic pain in adults, and that's probably 90% of the population of cannabis users, for antiemetics in the treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and I'll, I'll testify to that, and for improving patients with um, multiple sclerosis spasticity. And then the evidence drops off. 
But the lack of evidence to me is really, a, a, it's because of the circumstances around cannabis. It isn't that there's not, the evidence would be substantially different if the, different if the research had been there. And certainly there is overwhelming anecdotal evidence within the community because why else would they be using it? So conveniently, things that are ignored, I believe, are these kind of statistics, which look a little bit funny there, but this is true. I mean, alcohol, cigarettes and now opiates are far more deadly than, than cannabis. Cannabis has never caused anybody to die. So what we do... Um, Originally, it was to change minds about cannabis. I think that we have changed many minds, and I think that the general public is with us. But we need to change now to the idea of compassion rather than evidence. Let's build the evidence as we go. Let's treat people compassionately. Let's give people the care of their doctor rather than treating them as a criminal. Um, N of one studies or personalised medicine, I believe, is the best model for cannabis. Um, I'm told by the New South Wales chief scientist, Mary O'Kane, who travelled, uh, we, we travelled together with the Premier um, to Israel. We looked at that model over there. There's absolutely no reason why we couldn't have a compassionate access scheme in, in New South Wales. Simply by changing from an evidence-based model, recognising that the evidence is building, and change to a compassionate model where all these hundreds of thousands of people who are using cannabis illegally are, are decriminalised, where they're supervised by their doctor, where that data is gathered and where that data then translates down the track to valuable evidence. I don't know why that's so difficult. I've put in there a picture of Bastin Seidel, who's the president of the RACGP, and Bill Turner, who's the um, the head of the Office of Drug Control. At our last symposium, we had a really interesting panel. Bastian spoke very um, positively about the idea of N of 1 trials and how that works really well in the general practice. Our big problem is that the government is not recognising the skills of our general practitioners, and I think that in itself is a crime. Um, general practitioners are the people that are with people are the doctors that are with people for their lifelong journey and usually people that are using cannabis. It's not, it's not a quick fix for something. They usually have a chronic condition. So I think GPs are entirely the right people to be looking after their patients um, and I think per the idea of personalised medicine would, um, would solve a lot of the, the, the dilemma that we're in now and a lot of the reason why my phone doesn't stop ringing from patients that need help and support because they can't get it from their doctor. Uh, the other interesting thing that um, Bill Turner said that day on the panel was that a person's previous use of cannabis should be or can be recognised by the TGA as evidence of the efficacy of that treatment. Unfortunately, that's all talk because that doesn't happen. We basically, we need your help. We need the support of the Nurses Association. We need you to get vocal. We need you to tell our health minister that the policy that has been put in place is not working. It, my phone doesn't stop ringing. I know my colleagues' phones don't stop ringing. Patients are out there. They're looking for support. They should be going to their doctor for support. They've either got doctors that want to help but feel they can't because of the bullying that goes on within that fraternity, or you've got doctors that have what I call willful ignorance 
They don't want to know. They say, go away, do what you've got to do, don't tell me about it, I don't want to know. We need to change that. We need to make these people feel like they're being nurtured by their health system instead of like they're completely devoid of the health system and that they're really at the mercy of the justice system. Our police are being put in a ridiculous predicament. Um, this isn't right. So we need the support of the Nurses Association and hopefully I'm going to talk to um, Brett a little bit later, but really if nurses can support their patients, um, you'll be starting to see more and more of these patients because they are getting braver. They are deciding that they want to speak out, but there's still so much fear. Um, so that's it from me and, well, thank you for your attention. We're going to have a question session uh, with the panel, and that's what I've asked you to put your questions, but are there any quick questions for Lucy before she goes, or indeed for Brett? It's good to see medicinal cannabis being used for anti-inflammatory purposes and analgesic purposes to improve quality of life and relieve pain. And I think we need to extend that to other um, areas of mental pain, like people with depression and also people with um, uh, uh, pathological grief. So I see it as not just the anti-inflammatory and the um, physical analgesic, but also mental health. Um, yep. It's not just that patients want it to get a high of dopamine. It's not just that. It really does help relieve depression and anxiety. And, Sorry, um, was there a question? I'm just conscious of the time. And we do have a psychiatrist speaking later on who okay. address some of the mental health issues. So it's really more a comment, but what I gather is that we have to administer cannabis in a safe uh, form, not smoked and burnt. Okay, thank you. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes. If you'd like to keep your comments, if, if you have questions rather than comments at this stage, please just come to the microphone, please. Thank you. I don't understand why we didn't uh, follow the Canadian um, model because I worked over there 10 years ago and I was prescribed, um, they were, we were giving it out to patients in a mental health unit, acute mental health unit, mainly for depression and anxiety. So why are we 10 years behind here? Look, for whatever reason, the, the government has... <laughs> and you, I have my own theory on this for the, the motives behind the government for going down the TGA model and the model that we've accepted. I mean, they felt that there was already a system in place and that, as I said, the square peg could be fitted into the round hole, which clearly hasn't worked. But, um, yeah, look, definitely many people are using it for mental health and many people are using it for all manner of things. And, and one thing that is interesting that you say there, I've mentioned about Canada, if you remember the, the lady with the child on the ground with the CDKL5 where she's administering cannabis via the tube, that family, a family of six children, have now moved to Canada. That lady, want, you know, I, I contact her quite regularly, she wants to be living in Australia. She's an Australian. Um, 
but she said, I can't get medicine for my daughter in Australia. So th that's what's going to happen. And that's part, you know, another sad fact about the way the federal government has gone about this. The states can implement their own systems and they all have really different views. It doesn't seem to matter what party they are. Uh, it's more about the bureaucracy because we know this is all about the bureaucracy. But in, in, in America, you, have, you, you ended up with a situation where you had refugees based on what state they were in. People were travelling interstate or moving states. Um, Charlotte Figge, you know, Charlotte's web was only available in some states. So you saw this mass influx of families with children with epilepsy moving to a state where they could get CBD or Charlotte's web for their children. I mean, we had the opportunity to do this so right. How could it have gone so wrong? Um, but part of the problem is the government won't even admit that there's a problem. But they're not the ones that the patients ring up every day um, and need counselling. And what about the mental health of the patients that are, are still fearing the knock of the door? Yeah, they're, they're fighting for their lives in many cases. They shouldn't have to be worrying about being a criminal as well. <laughs> <laughs>